Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 62 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesman. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, what, what day is it? Well, it's a complicated question. We're kind of we're kind of recording in time capsule mode. Uh oh, right? this is this is always a dangerous proposition, especially these days. Now, to us, it's Friday, March second, Friday of the week when we dropped episode sixty-one. What's going on, Steve? Uh, well, you and I have these perfectly counter countercrossed, mismatched schedules next week because apparently there's a world out there that you know asks us to go do things. Bad decision number one. Seriously, so we are going to try this crazy move of recording Friday afternoon and dropping on Monday and hoping that you know the narrative <laughs> hasn't been totally overtaken by then. So it, it'll help that we're going to drop it on Monday to get a jump on next week, and maybe just maybe there won't be a bunch of crazy stuff dropping at the close of the week on Friday the 2nd when we're actually recording just before that. And if there is, this will be a super funny episode to listen to on Monday when it's like, oh, remember what actually might have been on the on the front burner Friday? Funny or otherwise. Remember, that was the last pre-war episode. Um, hey, predictions? <laughs> let's, let's put ourselves on record. Um, Don't go anywhere near Sarajevo. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> what I'm saying is that I think we could uh, entertain ourselves and our listeners here by uh, offering some realistic predictions about what might actually drop okay, here we, we would have wanted to talk here about. Here we go. Okay. Someone senior in the White House is not going to be there by the time this episode drops. Absolutely a safe bet, I think, as far as these things go. But who? Is it H.R. McMaster? Well, I don't think that'll happen that quickly. My prediction is he'll still be the National Security Advisor hmm. come Monday. I, I, I didn't ask me to be that, that specific. I'm just saying <laughs> somebody. Well, what is your prediction, future fortune teller man? That the weather will be variable around the country. <laughs> that? that the wind will die down. The wind will die down. I mean, this is we, today is actually our admitted student day here at UT, and it's like oh, 74 it's of degrees and sunny, and there's like a, nor, a bomb cyclone in the northeast. And so it's like, hmm. This is how we got you here, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> so, I, came, I came for the waters. I waters? Think, what waters? We're in the <laughs> desert. I was misinformed. I think we're going to possibly get a firing. What about uh, we're going to have Mueller indictments galore? You know, new, it's, new it's, it's 3.30 Eastern on Friday as I say this. I feel like, you know, there would have been some yeah. something about that if that was, hum- if that was coming. But. All right. Well, maybe it'll be a quiet week. What We have plenty to talk about, however. Even though we only dropped episode 61 a few days ago, we looked at the calendar, and here's what we've got. Uh, first of all, we have a trade war brewing. You might think that's a little bit outside of our lane, but in fact, the president's uh, tariff announcement on steel is justified, Steve. On what grounds? National security. Thank you, Mr. President. We would like to talk about things like uh, the GATT or the, you know, the what was this thing called? The trade, uh, the the Trade Expansion Act in 1962, as amended. I, I don't think we've ever talked about Title 19 of the U.S. Code on this ep- on this podcast before. So we're breaking out some new ground. <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit. Then we'll move on to uh, so, for some us. more familiar topics. Yeah. How about Yemen? How about the war in Yemen? Mm. Or uh, the wars? There, it, I was going to say I, I, that's a that, that's a that's a pejorative framing of the entire I, inquiry. I'm all about using the question presented to uh, tilt the argument in my favor. Um, <laughs> what about what about uh, military commissions? You know, we were talking before we started taping that. We usually kind of reference these sort of categorical headings for recurring topics. Oh, the Milcoms. The Milcoms is a recurring topic. Uh, I actually think it's fair to say right now that the narrative framing is 
the Milcom's in crisis. Yes, that, that's a little bit strong, but it, boy, is it close. I, I mean, I think it's. I think. I mean, Scott Anderson has a post up on Lawfare today, Friday, which will be old news by Monday. That basically looks at February as a month of you know horrors, um, right? Queen Elizabeth referred to what 1995 as her honest horribles, right? The you know, I mean, the commissions had a bad month, and and part of the problem is that I don't think there are obvious ways out. They need an honest miraculous, um, and they're not likely to get it. So we'll talk about. We're not going to go into it as deep as we have in more recent episodes because there's only been a few things that's happened. But one topic we've addressed before has had a development, and we'll we'll talk about it. Uh, and then we'll hit a series of developments that you could lump under the overall heading of how. Questions of, of oversight and transparency are really important to having a national security Indeed. establishment. And we have a couple of interesting flashpoints on that. Right. Front. So what are, what, what are some of those? Well, so we have, um, sir, uh, you know, we talked on episode 61 last last week, which is still this week, which is kind of weird, about the FISA Court of Review proceeding over the ACLU's effort to obtain access to some new public, um, uh, sorry, to more of the hitherto private and classified FISA opinions. Um, Bobby, we're going to talk a bit about like how that case might actually end up in the Supreme Court. Related to that, but distinct, there was an article that broke, I think, to much notice on Thursday of this week. That's last week by the time you're listening. I think it was, um, I don't even, actually, I don't remember the author. It was New York Times um, about how there, the Senate Intelligence Committee has accused the Republican majority on the House Intelligence Committee of being responsible for leaking texts by Senator Wyden to Fox News. Ouch. That's a pretty bad, you know, uh, that's a pretty ugly moment. It's like the, it starts like the setup of a bad joke, a national security law. Oh, uh, except that doesn't appear to be a joke. Um, we also, before her resignation, we also had the Hope Hicks testimony this week. We're talking about her, um, the, how executive privilege sort of was a flashpoint there and how it fits into this broader conversation about accountability. Um, and we actually might bring back some frivolity just because we haven't had some frivolity in a little while. I, I thought we might talk briefly about some favorite TV dramas. Oh, that's good. That's going to present some interesting category definitions. Well, that's questions. always that's that's it's almost always more. That's fun, actually the only part I want to talk right, about. Right than than the actual uh, 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 drama. I, I will just say, uh, spoiler alert: um, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that the best TV drama of all time isn't The West Wing. Okay, we will have a discussion on that. Um, Steve, have you seen Black Panther yet? Are you, uh, like the, are you like the one person in the country who's not seen this film? You're really making it hard for me to uh, to get into real frivolity mode. If All I right, here is my here is my commitment to you. Okay, I, I won't guarantee it by episode sixty three. Okay, by episode sixty four. What do I have to do? Nothing. All right, good. But you know, episode sixty four. I by that time I will have seen Black Panther. All right, good. All right. So so you have no more than two more episodes to you know. Store up all of your questions about Wakandan <laughs> natural resources and say, ethics like, and law. So, there's and lots of good national security law in there. They're really. I, I listen. I, I get it, and not I got to mention see it. political theory. I, I'm not avoiding it on purpose. I mean, I don't want anyone to think that like I have some aversion to going to see this movie. I, I know that you don't. All right, so let's jump right in. Um, let's talk about this trade business. Uh, and trade, <laughs> trade, our usual topic. When, when, when the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal is coming out against President Trump, you know it's a sign. So there, there's a lot, obviously, we could say about the economic mm-hmm. wisdom here. I, I'm, I'm sure we probably 
would agree that this is not a smart move. Um, there's a lot of track record. We've been down this road before. It doesn't doesn't actually benefit the United States. And it's also just one, one other thing I'll just throw in. Um, a heck of a lot more Americans are in industries that depend upon steel as opposed to industries that produce steel, right? And so it's, if you actually play this, play this story out, it's not hard to see how the long-term costs are actually going to dramatically outweigh any short-term benefits. And that's without the retaliation that's uh, going to come. Right that, is, right. that assumes that, that, that there's no efforts to sort of similarly invoke national security by our competitors. Can they, uh, can they ban the podcast as a vicious form of retaliation? I don't think that has any effect on GDP. <laughs> it certainly doesn't affect ours. Um, <laughs> yeah, query, if you are a listener in China... Reach out and let us know. Mm. I don't expect to hear from anybody, but that would be really interesting and cool if actually we are getting some airplay over Indeed. there. Indeed, um, We've definitely heard from a number of our international listeners. We'd love it that you're out there. Spread the word. Um, okay, so let's talk about the legal architecture here. Since the president's justification for this is national security, why does there need to be a justification, Steve? Um, so the way this works, so far as I understand it, is both under GATT itself, the GATT. General Agreements yeah. on Tariffs and Trade, that's, I'm just busting this out in my long-term there knowledge there. there. And under the relevant federal statutes, including most especially 19 U.S.C. Section 1862, um, the president is generally bound to comply with these trade agreements, agreements that generally include um, fairly sharp curt uh, uh, curtailment of tariffs, um, unless he determines um, that such reduction or elimination um, would threaten to impair the national security. Okay, so there's there's your phrase. Now, that's from the statute, right? That's from the statute. I'm that's, sorry, that's from that's 1862A. Uh, 1862A in old Title 19. Old Title 19. Um, you may be wondering, okay, but it, that's what's in our statutes. What is what is the GATT? Uh, what does GATT have to say about this? Article 21 of GATT has an exceptions, a general exceptions provision, and identifies three scenarios where, in effect, you're you're out from under the uh, GATT constraints. Um, one has to do with information disclosures involving security. That's not that's not the claim here. Um, one has to do with uh, situations where there's impairment of your obligations under the UN Charter relating to international peace and security. I don't think that's what they're talking about here. The middle one has a few subparts. Um, the situation is, quote, to prevent any contracting party from taking any action, which it considers necessary for the protection of its essential security interests. So that sounds like roughly what we got in the statute, except that the GATT Article 21 goes on to identify three specific scenarios it's kind of interesting, Steve. Listen to this. Uh, scenario one, your essential national, your essential security interests uh, are, quote, relating to fissionable materials. Nope. Nope. Okay. Or the materials from which they're derived, uranium, plutonium. Nope. Nope. Okay. Uh, skipping ahead, uh, the third category, uh, essential security interests, quote, taken in time of war or other emergency in international relations. Uh, uh, yeah, right. Uh, I mean, what, what's the emergency in international relations? I well, mean, I, I, what about war? Right. So, just, well, what's the war? How about Iraq, Syria, Islamic State, Al Qaeda, Afghanistan? Okay, but okay, Yemen. But, okay, we'll about Yemen. So, so we're back to Harry Truman. Exactly. Saying that he has to nationalize the steel mills right. because of the Korean War. Yeah, he's not trying to nationalize the steel mills. He's actually acting under the. I understand that, but 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 a totally different. It's kind of in fact, he's he's saying category one steel seizures category one. So here's the problem, right? So so as I understand the problem, and I am not an economist and I am not a trade expert, so I'm going to totally get this wrong. But I, I thought that the whole sort of provocation here was China dumping cheap steel right into the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. So that means that there's plenty of supply, right, for cheap steel in the U.S. 
Right. So, so how is it interfering with our war effort that there's lots of access to cheap steel? Right. So, so the argument, it's, it's a perfect contrast with Korea where was Truman was saying we're actually going to run out of bullets and guns. And here, you don't really have that kind of argument. So though you do actually have the war predicate, I would argue, um, it's very hard to find where the nexus is with the actual dumping allegation. So that brings us, and I saved it for last for this reason, <laughs> that leaves you with the, the middle exception. So again, this is the GATT Article 21 set of exceptions. You can get out from under GATT if you are dealing with protection of your essential security interests, quote, relating to the traffic in arms, ammunition, and implements of war, and to such traffic and other goods and materials as is carried on directly or indirectly for the purposes of supplying. Now, that one doesn't require a nexus to an actual ongoing war, so I think this must be the closest thing they can get to. Mm. That is, the claim would be that we're losing our steel industrial production base because of unfair dumping that's driving American production out of the market. And as a result, we're losing the capacity that relates to the production of the implements of war, arms and ammunition, but more than that, prospectively, and that in and of itself is a national security threat. Um, You know, setting aside momentarily whether there's actually a legitimate case to be made about the dumping, and I'm perfectly willing to believe that there in fact is, that doesn't shock my sensibilities. Um, This seems plausible to me, extremely unwise perhaps to go ahead and act on it in this way. Right. And and and, and by all accounts without perhaps with long term involvement by the relevant departments, but with no sort of this week short term, you know, vetting through the proper agency channels. Well that's an interesting question. But let's let's get to that. But would would you agree I, so I'm gonna take the position that the broad scope of GAD Article twenty one combined with the broad scope of the implement statute um, it's it's fair play. Oh oh, listen. I, I mean, my again, I'm coming to this pretty pretty you know freshly. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> As if our listeners can't tell. But I, I don't think the claim here is that there's some kind of separation of powers problem. I think no, no. I think the relevant agreements and the relevant implementing statutes give the president exactly this power. I think it's actually a really interesting example of one of the many contexts in which Congress has delegated yes. to the president the power to override or back out of or upset some existing institutional arrangement when he determines that doing so is necessary to protect national security. And then that gets back to your long-term you know, area of interest, which is how exactly do we sort of tie up the record that justifies, right? What, how, do, how do we ensure that when the president invokes national security to, to get around one of these authorities, he actually has a good reason for doing so? Exactly. And, and here, this seems like a perfect test case where I think most observers are looking at this in, well, I actually think it's pretty hotly contested, Steve. I think there are a lot of observers looking at this and thinking, you know what? Yes, dumping is destroying a key part, a security-relevant part of the industrial base. Other people looking at it and saying, this is just kind of this half-cocked measure. Um, now, it gets more interesting, right? So to take this action, there was a Commerce Department investigation. This is this is uh, something that I actually was unaware of until just a little while ago. And, and by the way, we should take this chance to plug Matt Kahn, right, has a yeah. great lawfare post from July 21st, 2017, titled Pretextual Protectionism, um, which, alliteration aside, is actually, I think, a really good explainer on the background here. No, that's exactly right. And in fact, one of the key points that Matt alerted me to, which was a surprise to me, and I went, I'd love to learn more about this, um, it suggests that when, it, when a member state of, of the GATT arrangement uh, invokes Article 21, um, it's not a second-guessable thing that, right. that WTO or otherwise doesn't get involved in contesting this. But of course, what, what then happens is self-help by the other nations that might take a different view. And that's where the trade war aspect comes in. Now, 
under the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, which we mentioned earlier. <laughs> that old chestnut. Uh, there's <laughs> drink. There is an arrangement in, by which the Commerce Department conducts an investigation, a fact-finding process, or a policy judgment process. These things are intertwined to decide is there actually a, a threat of a threat to impair national security from one of these types of trade arrangements. Um, in unbeknownst to us at the time, Steve, and I bet to many listeners, just two weeks ago, February 16th, 2018, Commerce Secretary Ross announced the department had concluded its multi-month investigation into that exact question for steel and for aluminum and made a finding that the uh, quantities and circumstances of steel and aluminum imports uh, threatens to impair American national security. Um, this, under the statutory framework, set in motion a deadline. And again, I was unaware of this. By April 11th, as I understand it, under the statute, by April 11th, a month and nine days from when we're recording, Trump, <laughs> anyways, had to make a determination about what his response was going to be. So a situation that I initially took to be extremely off the cuff, maybe the moment in nature of the actual pronouncement was off the cuff and ill-considered. But I now appreciate that there was this much larger body. It wasn't Trump just asserting this nakedly and out of nowhere. This is undergirded by a Commerce Department process and finding. Um, in my writings about national security fact deference in the legal setting, one of the factors that I argue uh, should be given great weight is you don't just say, well, it's the executive branch. And if the president says the following factual or policy prediction is, is, uh, is X, you don't just automatically give a full measure of deference regardless of the circumstances. It should matter more and bear more weight where there has been an application of relevant expertise. Um, so I think in asking about Trump's determination in this case, we have to give weight to the fact that the Commerce Department actually did investigate it. Now, we can quibble with it. It might even be that you could come back with sort of rebuttal evidence to show that they didn't run a real process. That said, uh, I don't, I'm not aware of that. I, as far as I can tell, they ran a real process and made a determination. Right. And so, although although it sounds like they ran a real process at some point in the past, and then the president made sort of an off the cuff, you know, perhaps knee jerk reaction to all the news that piled up this week. I, I wouldn't characterize it that way. I would say that uh, they made they ran a process, the formal results of which were finalized within the past month. No, no, I, I know, but the question is why pull the trigger when he did? Oh, sure, but. So it was going to, I think this was, I now realize this was going to happen within uh, the period between now and April 11th. Maybe he would have walked it back, maybe he didn't. But it's not the sort of fly by the seat of his pants thing that I just initially assumed it was. And I think a lot of the commentary portrayed it as. No, no, right. That, the, that this had been, that the, the sort of the machinery had been grinding yeah. for a while. And right. that it may be that, in fact, the ultimate decision was done without a lot of consultation, vetting, interagency process, et cetera. Fine. Yeah. But that at least the groundwork was perhaps yeah. there. So what, bottom, whatever its wisdom. So bottom line is uh, other podcasts will document and explain why this is still all a terrible idea. 100%. We're simply here to say that uh, he was within his rights to do it. Um, which is actually a pretty good reminder that not every horrible, terrible, stupid thing that the president does is actually illegal. Ding, ding. We should have a little bell ring for that kind of observation. <laughs> uh, and that, is it to that get the National Security Law Podcast two thumbs up seal of approval? Two, I, I, two <laughs> thumbs up right there. Or did four thumbs up? That's four between us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, turning to uh, the topic that... Uh, Yemen! Yemen. Um, okay, so... St weird stuff is going on. Did you, Do you remember on Friends when uh, Chandler is trying to... Doesn't want to break up with... Uh, Janice. And so Which time? He pretends he's moving to Yemen in, in, in a sort of a pre-9-11 oh pre-TSA. Oh my god. <laughs> wow, that was, <laughs> that was pretty good. Thank you. It's parachutes and knapsack. Um, 
Yeah, he like boards a flight. You know, there's like no security at JFK. He just gets on a plane at JFK. She sees him to the gate to make sure to say goodbye. <laughs> and when he's getting on the plane, he turns to this one. He's like, when we get to Yemen, can I live with you? Remember at a time when America's uh, sort of popular footprint for Yemen, right. uh, for better or worse, was sort of punchlines on friends. Very different world from the 1990s. A little bit. And then, well, not always, including, you know, walking onto a plane without a ticket. But Indeed. So, <laughs> so we've got... Uh, a, a number of things underway, but uh, part of what's going on is that there was a letter to uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, from the Acting General Counsel of DOD, Bill Castle. Which was itself a response to a resolution, right, introduced by Senator Sanders, Senator Lee, Senator Murphy. Right, which was itself, uh, <laughs> it, it, I guess it's actually being, it just got reintroduced. Yeah. This, this is a new iteration of a prior bill. Yep. What's the bill? It's kind of, is it fair to describe it, Steve, as a... It's a war powers resolution follow-up or baby or echo specific to Yemen and especially concerned with this idea, not so much that we're using force against AQAP or Islamic State there, although we're going to get into those nuances, but rather it's all about U.S. support to the Saudi-led coalition fighting the Houthis. Is that basically the size of it? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, so Una Hathaway and, uh, and also Aaron Haviland uh, out of Yale, produced a really neat post about this on Just Security the other day, kind of walking through the letter and breaking it down. And, and so hat tip to them for drawing our attention to all this. Um, and also, I mean, I, just, I, the, I mean, Ona, yeah, that, that, that post was great. Um, I would also just flag, I just want to make sure I get this right. Um, I was actually tipped to the letter by the reporter for Huffington Post. I just want to make sure I get, I, I, I give credit where credit's due. Um, so the reporter from, ah, HuffPost, where's the story? <laughs> That's the kind of prep we do. We just, we're, we're both sitting here. You should, you got, you have to appreciate that we're just sitting here in Steve's office with our microphones, laptops, phones, and notes sprawling all, all over the place. We couldn't be less professional. No, we really couldn't. Um, so it's Akbar Shahid Ahmed, who's the foreign affairs reporter at HuffPost, um, and he's the one who turned me on to this. So I just want to cool. make sure I give credit where credit's due. Hats are tipping in every direction. All right. Okay, so here I'm going to quote some from the Castle letter, fe- dated February 27th, um, just a few days ago. Uh, skipping into the text to get to the substance, uh, he notes that this Senator McConnell had asked for uh, DOD's views on this Sanders-Lee, who was the third? I think it was Murphy, right? Sanders-Lee-Murphy bill. It's a draft joint, or now is a joint resolution bill that would, quote, direct the president to remove U.S. armed forces from hostilities in or affecting the Republic of Yemen, except United States armed forces engaged in operations directed at Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or associated forces. And then that, that's sort of the, the, the moving part there. So what is uh, what's Castle saying in response to that? First, if enacted, he says, this won't actually do any good because it it's, seems directed at trying to get American forces to stop their direct involvement supporting the Saudis and the coalition. But that resolution's text requires us to stop engaging in hostilities or being involved in hostilities there. And uh, Castle argues, this is not hostilities. Under the particularized war powers resolution, common law, if you will, that's been developed over time, most recently and notably uh, in a a very broad way in connection with some Obama administration interventions and and testimony from Obama officials. Totally. uh, Hostilities, uh, going back to the 70s, the executive branch position has been, if we're not, if our people aren't shooting at and getting shot at, the other side, then whatever we're doing, our forces are not introduced into hostilities. So Castle begins by saying, like, well, this is badly drafted. It doesn't even suit its own purpose. Um, 
And then he goes on to say, but look, the fundamental premise is flawed. Um, well, that's the same argument there. Uh, he goes on to describe what it is that the United States is doing. And I think one of the key things that this usefully does for us is maps out the different simultaneous conflict scenarios at, at work in Yemen, right? And, and it, sort of the specific function that military forces wearing the U.S. uniforms are, are performing. Exactly. And then from there, the different ways that the American domestic legal architecture, never mind the international one, the American domestic legal architecture maps onto these different conflicts in different ways. Now, there may be some of you thinking, and some will take the view, as we sort of saw a bit in the post-9-11 period when when people were debating whether you could have one geographic location with multiple distinctly categorized and distinctly understood armed conflicts underway, there, there are some who would say, look, if, if you're all there fighting, you may have different enemies simultaneously, but it's one giant international armed conflict. There's others who would say, no, 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 there's, there's an IAC over here, but then at the same time, but for different reasons with some different parties, there's this NIAC with international involvement. All I can say is it, it certainly sets up like a law school exam fact pattern. <laughs> but I, Maybe not in Fed courts. Not in Fed courts, but certainly in our, our other national security cases. So we've got the U.S. for many years using armed force directly against AQAP, um, mostly at the invitation, at least mostly, at the invitation of whatever we're asserting to be the then government of Yemen. Um, you've got this Saudi coalition fighting the Houthis. Uh, and then the American involvement in that is described here as consistent with what's already in the public record. Uh, it's air-to-air refueling. It's providing both uh, defense articles and services to maintain those. So, you know, crews from contractors maintaining aircraft and weapon systems on the ground. Uh, air-to-air refueling, providing intelligence support. And famously, there's been a lot of uh, publicly described American involvement in helping at the targeting stage, Mm -hmm. Uh, always from the American side emphasizing that part of what our people are doing is trying to uh, ensure enforcement of uh, the law of armed conflict, especially proportionality and distinction considerations. Um, And people quibble whether that's actually going well or not, but I think it's good that we're saying that that's what we're there for, uh, and I hope that's what we're doing. And then, uh, well, I guess that's about the size of it. So I guess there's, there's an interesting sort of wrinkle about AUMF coming up. But in general, Steve, I mean, do you think, uh, what do you make of this idea of introducing a joint resolution to, as a vehicle, to force the United States out of hostilities there anyways? A, is that a sensible way to proceed in terms of congressional involvement and decisions to be involved in this sort of activity? And then B... Is it constitutional? So that I mean, that to me is the real conversation here, right? Because there is some confusion on Twitter about whether um, the letter was actually disclaiming that the AUMF covers ISIS. I think you and I both have run that down pretty well. It's just no. It's just you know respond to the resolution. Um, I think if Congress really has, Wait, should, a, we, should we unpack that point real quick? That sure. might have gone past. Right. Some so so there's language in the letter, right? At one point at which the letter says something to the effect of, um, right, that the resolution um, would, would apply to Al-Qaeda, but not to ISIL. Right. Let me read it. Please. Uh, and, and again, the reason this is significant is the basic position or the premise of the senators pushing this bill is Congress hasn't authorized this. Right. The president's out on, on a frolicking detour with the armed forces, and we want to direct him to withdraw. Before you can even get to the question of whether Congress can, through a joint resolution, force the president to withdraw, there's an interesting question whether the descriptive case is right. The, the administration's position is, uh, well, no, we have, we have all sorts of statutory and constitutional authorities for being there. We should enumerate those. I think we should walk through them really quick. Uh, first, we should talk about the AUMF. Right. So clearly, if this were an attempt to force us to stop using force against the 
AQAP targets that we've been using force against, I, for me at least, I think it's very obvious to respond and say, look, Congress has authorized this. Right. People fight over whether AQAP should count, but that's that's a pretty familiar argument. I think the government's got the better position on Listen, that. Listen, even I think AQAP is an associated force. There you go. So, so here's where it gets interesting. So um, let me read from the, again, I read this a moment ago. The, the statute or the joint resolution calls for removal of U.S. armed forces from hostilities except those forces engaged in operations directed at AQAP or associated forces. Castle's letter in response notes, hostilities against, and I'm quoting here, hostilities against AQAP and associated forces are explicitly exempted from the resolution's termination requirement, comma, but hostilities against ISIS are not similarly exempted. Huh. Right. So a lot of folks sort of read that letter quickly and were like, wait, what? <laughs> it, it is arresting. You kind of pause and you're like, wait a minute. Is, is, that, is that Castle saying that Islamic State is not covered is, by the AUMF? Is not covered by the AUMF but in fact, because the, it's right. not an associated force. But in fact, because the, but in fact I think if you, if you run back that sentence, the resolution to which it's referring is actually the Lee Sanders Murphy resolution. Right, which has its own carve out and which would not. Well, well the carve out is, and I'm going to read it again. Yeah. The carve outs for U.S. forces engaged in operations directed at right. Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or associated forces. Um, but, it, that, but that's from that's from the resolution, right. right? Not the AUMF. Well, very much so. That's what I'm trying to say. But here's here's the thing: if the resolution's reference to AQAP and associated forces is read to mean all Al Qaeda associated forces or even successor forces, if it's meant to encompass. If that is just a, a wordy euphemism right. for whoever's covered by the O1AMF, then it's a remarkable thing for the DOD acting general counsel to say, right. hey, uh, the carve-out doesn't reach ISIS. That's totally inconsistent with the uh, Everything. the long-standing position <laughs> that ISIS is covered by the AMF. So, how can, so either it's a mistake or something's going on. I think the right way to understand this, the most plausible way, is he is reading the resolution whether the resolution was meant to read this way or not, right. he's reading the reference to associated forces there as AQAP specific and not ISIL. And and this and this gets to something we've talked about before, which is that the government has not always been consistent about whether its position is that ISIS is an associated force of yep. Al Qaeda, right. or whether it's covered by the AUMF because it's a derivative of Al Qaeda, or some combination of both. Right. And and of course, my my own view is yes. that the probably on reflection, the best way to understand it is it is a successor to a former associated force. AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, was clearly in the associated force category. Which would make it a derivative, I think, not a, right? It is not itself an associated force of Al-Qaeda. Well, or it was, and then it's a, just a further complication. It's successors in addition. All which is to say that, that on the topic where clarity is kind of important, the letter is at least a little sloppy. And, and so is the resolution. Right. And so they're talking past one another. All right. So back to what you actually asked me, which is, is this a good idea? Is it constitutional? Uh -huh. So on the good idea point, I mean, I guess my first reaction is I don't think we know enough. And so to me, I would rather see, you know, some pretty sort of sustained public hearings where witnesses are testifying about what's happening on the ground. That seems more productive. Right. Um, to actually build a narrative about the extent of U.S. involvement. Is it really just a train and equip mission? Are we actually standing up combat forces in the region? What's the special operations role here? Exactly. What's, you know, what's, the, what's the footprint? Yeah. What are the casualties that we're suffering? Now, of course, this may actually be happening 
um, behind the scenes, behind the scenes, but, yeah, classified settings, right? But but this debate is happening publicly, and so to me, I don't, you know, we're having a we're we're having a debate about legislation where where the necessary factual predicate is to me at least as yet under publicized. Is it perhaps a just a smart way to try to because you know these these are not people in position to control committees? Well, right. Or is this a way of trying to create pressure? To well, force Mike a Lee. I mean, Mike Lee is you know Mike Lee is a pretty I think you know if Mike Lee really wanted to make this a thing. Is he a chair? I don't think he's. He's a not chair, a chair but he's. I mean, he's on the judiciary committee, right? He, you know, I assume he has friends on the armed services committee. I mean, yeah, I think it might be a way of putting pressure on the committee's so we'll jurisdiction. All right, I actually think the much more interesting question is the second one you asked, and it's raised yeah. in footnote three of the letter, which is whether, insofar as the resolution would in fact require the removal of forces from uh, this conflict, whether it's unconstitutional. And to my mind, Bobby, this is the first time we have actually seen an overt invocation of what in the old days we would have called the commander-in-chief override. Override! Right? Um, from the Trump administration, right? Which is to say, the Trump administration has alluded to its Article II powers in lots of contexts. In Doe versus Mattis, it's referred to it as you know, detention authority. This is the first time I think we've seen it expressly suggest that a statute might be unconstitutional insofar as it violates the president's commander chief powers, which of course was one of the central structural arguments we had during the Bush administration. Indeed, and of course, what, what's really clever about the, and uh, somebody I think did this on purpose, the language in footnote three refer, uses the override word, but yep. it reverses it. It says the uh, resolution <laughs> would raise, quote, serious constitutional concerns to the extent it seeks to, over, <laughs> to override the president's determination as commander Nice try. Uh, I, I think that's well done. Well done. Because uh, why concede that the starting point for the analysis is that you've got this valid legislation and the president's trying to knock it down? Congress will have not? the power to make rules for the government of the land and naval forces. Commander-in-chief, sole organ in foreign affairs. Congress, Congress funds the military. Uh, oh, is this a funding bill? Oh, here I don't we think go anyone again. Did, All right. No one denies that they could cut the funding, or at least, actually, the, maybe they would, but they don't do it here. No, no. But so, so anyway, so all this is to say, um, I think it is a a the letter. I think is a is an important marker. I think it could have been written a little more precisely, but I think sure. what it's really raising is two different points. One is that we just don't know enough publicly about the U.S. involvement in the multifaceted conflict in Yemen. Um, and two, we're seeing for the first time some real constitutional flexing by the Trump administration vis-a-vis -vis the legislative branch. No doubt. And, and, and no doubt sort of sending some warning signals like, listen. Yes. Now, of course, this – it's one thing when, – when we say Bernie Sanders has a bill <laughs> – this is not Congress beginning to get crosswise. Yeah, the but president. when we say Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee have a bill, yeah, but Mike Mike Lee's not exactly Mitch McConnell, is he? In terms no. of, in terms of the power structure and the sort well, of the center of gravity, no one of the is leadership. Mitch McConnell. Well, this is true. So, so I, we don't want to make too much out of this because I don't think anyone in Washington thinks like, oh, this bill's got it's going to move. No, 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 but but I think we I think it is a story worth following. I mean, I think this is this is another sort of um, variant of the you know shadow conflict war power story that we try to cover on this podcast. Exactly so. And that now, doesn't get, and that, as you've talked about before, doesn't get enough attention because there aren't that many public um, inflection points. Exactly. Thank you very much. That, one of the earliest things I wrote. Um, one of the things, of course, that needs to be said here is that uh, none of this would actually become a, an effective piece of law barring an override of the president's well, inevitable veto. Of course. So, so this, is, this is about framing, but these, this is where we have this discourse, so it matters. All right. Uh, we're going to pivot to a speed round on the yes. military commissions in crisis. Okay, so which The crisis our, is still crisis in. The crisis has multiple strands. Which of our storylines has had any development? So, I mean, at least 
at the time we're recording, this is Friday afternoon, even though folks are probably hearing this on Monday, March 5th. I sure hope so. Um, the reality is that the only thing that really happened, big picture-wise, in the military commissions was there was a filing in the Court of Military Commission Review after we recorded episode 61 um, by Lieutenant Piet, the one remaining lawyer assigned to the Alan Sherry case. He's on it. Um, arguing, as we anticipated on this very podcast, that the Court of Military Commission Review has no jurisdiction to hear the government's interlocutory appeal of Judge Spath's order that temporarily abated the pretrial proceedings against Al Nashiri. All right, and that's exactly the you know the issue we've been flagging the past two episodes. Does right, and that just to to boil it down, dear listeners, the, the statutory question is whether an abatement order counts as quote termination unquote for purposes of ten U.S.C. section nine fifty D sub A. Right. And so, would you agree the government is bound to come back in addition to citing some of the court martial? They're going to cite court martial cases where an abatement order was treated as a termination. Yep. And then they'll say, let's look at Spath's own words. He said he's done until yep. another court tells him otherwise. Until a superior court. Right. And, and, but also, I mean, listen, if the government knows, I mean, if the government's smart, they'll say, and in any event, even if you don't have jurisdiction under 950D, you do have the authority to issue a mandamus. Yeah, and well, so, exactly. And that, I think, and both of us agree, like, that yeah. sure would be a more, more directly applicable yep. Uh, format. Yep. All right, All right, so that's so that's I mean, but the larger point, and and this is you know, folks should really read. I mean, Scott Anderson's post that went up on Lawfare on Friday um, about like the the really the no good, really bad, terrible, horrible month that the military was had right. in February. I mean, you know, there is a question here at some point about whether someone with a higher pay grade than us, you know, the dean, uh, the dean, <laughs> um, should come in and just say enough already, like. You know, yeah. even if these cases, even if they're able to somehow twist, you know, the sort of metal back into shape um, and the get these weakened. things going again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just, I just don't know. I don't know how the latest episode – there is such a cloud of illegitimacy, and I just don't know how anything that's going to happen in the commissions – in the next, in the near term, is going to abate that cloud. Well, this actually reminds us of something we didn't flag Did dissipate that about. cloud. Uh, yes, the uh, the ongoing question which we've been covering of what will befall the two captured uh, formerly British yeah, uh, Islamic State. I hate. I know you I'm, do. That's why I'm, I'm needling you. You are totally needling me by <laughs> using that august name with these jerks. Um, where are they going to be prosecuted? There's there's a there's. It, a it's been a hard day. It's been a hard day's night. Oh, oh god, that's awful. Um, anyways. So apparently the, there's some diplomatic pressure coming out of, of the Brits. Back in the USSR? Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> this, is, this is killing me. Um, they, they do not – they want a diplomatic assurance. You know, they don't have the guy, so their leverage is limited. Right. But it's a special relationship. They, they want an assurance not only that this, these guys won't be sent to Gitmo, whether for commissions – to be prosecuted or mere detention, uh, but also that we take the death penalty off the table. Um, since they don't have custody, and, and uh, presumably the the Syrian uh, or the uh, yeah the Syrian Democratic Forces unit that's holding them presumably is more likely to listen to us if we really want them. I don't think it's really dispositive, but it's it's an anchor. Some of the some of the victim uh, families have also kind of weighed in with the same vein, like let's not make martyrs out of the guy. Um, I. I hate to see us taking the death penalty off the table in, in general for people who have this much blood in their hands, as it appears. And I also hate to see the leverage for uh, for just getting them to complete to their crimes yeah. and settling it that way being taken off the table. That said, it's it's important that this not become a thing where, because of these jerks, allies are sniping at each other. I agree. And, and the ultimate takeaway is what matters is um, – 
at, at a minimum, removing them from the battlefield for life. And that means at a minimum, a life sentence. Where is the one most likely place for that to happen? A civilian right. American federal court. And even if you actually thought they might plead, I mean, look at the Al Darby. So, so this might be a good segue, right? Because something else has happened since our last episode. Um, Charlie Savage had a story in the New York Times on Thursday um, about Al Darby, right? We've talked before about the Al Darby case and how he was supposed to be repatriated to Saudi Arabia under the terms of his plea deal. So it turns out that it, um, the hiccup does actually appear to be on the Saudi side. Yes, I'm not 100%. So the, we knew there was a hiccup on the Saudi side in the sense that, from what DOD had said, the Saudis weren't giving us the assurances on security provisions right. that we wanted. But that's not the – I argue that that's not actually part of the plea agreement. You don't really at this point get to complain about that. What you could complain about is if the Saudis are saying, we're not sure we want them. Well, that's the thing. And so the question is so, – so in a statement that – um, Al Darby relayed to the press through his attorney Ramzi Qasim from mm-hmm. uh, who we know from Kitty. Um, he said, um, "The my own government is an obstacle to my repatriation." Right. So he, you know, he he gave the impression that. Um, whether or not it's that Saudi doesn't want him, it's that the perception is the perception that's been related to him at least is that the reason why it hasn't happened is right. something on the Saudi end. Right, and, and it's easy to see how these things actually collapse in practice. Where look, if the Saudis aren't sure they want them, one thing they can do to effectuate the result of not getting them is not to answer uh, the way the U.S. government needs them to on security assurances. That said. Uh, it does seem like he could and should that Romsey could go into court on his behalf and uh, press the plea agreement could and make the, and make now, the government uh, demonstrate this. Yep. Uh, what a mess. It doesn't exactly encourage other people to cooperate no. and testify I mean, against other detainees. Right. I mean, so, right, if you if the government now wants to get someone else to enter into a plea agreement, you know, what's the what's their evidence that they're going to honor it? Yeah, well, the, yeah, it's certainly if part of the plea agreement needs to be a transfer to right. serve out your custody elsewhere. Okay, what else have we got? So I thought we'd pivot quickly to just a couple of interesting tidbits in the general category of oversight and transparency. Lightning round. So we talked uh, in last week's episode about the increasingly interesting case in the FISA Court of Review um, involving the ACLU's effort to obtain access to previously classified um, opinions by the FISA court. Um, and, you know, Bobby, nothing new has happened since then. I just thought it would be worth flagging one point that I was not clear about last week. Okay. Um, and the point that I wasn't clear, I think, sufficiently clear about last week is where things go after the FISA court of review actually rules, right? That is to say, um, suppose that, you know, the party who loses wants to appeal the decision um, to the Supreme Court, what would happen? Um, so just to be clear, by the way, the current composition of the FISA Court of Review, um, the presiding judge is Judge William Bryson from the Federal Circuit, although his term expires on May 18th. So this is going to, you know, I assume they'll decide it by then, but, you know, just, just to Federal have it out Circuit. there. Um, indeed, right? Well, already in D.C., I think, is the idea. Yeah, no, Interesting. Um, also, Judge Cabranes, um, right, from the Second Circuit, and Judge Tallman from the Ninth Circuit. Those are okay. the three judges on the panel. Okay. Pretty good panel for the government, which is, you know, historically that's been true for the FISA Court of Review. So imagine if the Court of Review actually rules for the government. Um, interestingly, no one at that point would have a statutory right to seek certiorari from the Supreme Court. The only way to get cert from the Supreme Court to the FISA Court of Review is if the government loses a on a warrant application and the Court of Review affirms the district court's denial of the application. There's no other way to get cert. Okay. But interestingly, in the USA Freedom Act, um, when Congress created the provision that allowed for the FISA Court 
to certify interested and important questions to the Court of Review, which is how this case has gotten to the Court of Review. It also gave the Court of Review the power to certify questions to the Supreme Court, just like any of the other circuit courts of appeals. Um, and so there actually is a mechanism, if the FISA Court of Review wants to utilize it, where they could basically say, hey, Supreme Court, we've just decided something interesting. Would you like to review whether we got this right? Um, the certification process is obscure. Yeah. The Supreme Court has not answered a certified question since 1981 after Dames and Moore. For any court, not for, from any court. They, but but the any court part is part of this. So the reason why the court disfavors certification is because usually it has other means to hear the appeal, right? Certification is usually also it's also it's usually available when certiorari is as well. And so it's interesting to think that like this could actually get to the Supreme Court if the court review says something interesting about the ACLU's. First Amendment right of public access or mm -hmm. lack thereof, mm -hmm. about the ACLU standing or lack thereof, mm -hmm. right? So just a, an interesting sort of thing lurking in the background is because of this obscure provision of the USA Freedom Act that I think a lot of people don't know about, there's actually now a way for a case to get from the FISA Court Review to the Supreme Court that did not previously exist. Most people probably assume that, of course, you could always potentially get cert and just the court happens not to take it. But that was never true. Yeah, um, interesting. Do you think it'll actually happen here? I think it depends on what the court review says. I mean, I think, you know, the, the broader question of whether there's ever a public right of access to um, decisions by the FISA court is actually pretty interesting, especially in the, in the Devin Nunes, Carter Page moment we're living in. Do you think that if they all go see The Post... And then rule that they might be more disposed. Uh, you know, I, who, there's no accounting for taste. Anyway, so all this is to say, you know, th this case I think is actually really one to watch carefully. Yep, okay, that's pretty interesting. I hadn't realized that angle on it. Speaking of FISA, um, also in the news from the New York Times, right, this um, story that came out on Thursday. Um, now, it's interesting. Richard Burr has denied the claim in the story, but the story reports that the Senate Intelligence Committee has concluded that text messages by Senator Mark Warner, who of course is the ranking member of the Senate Intelligence mm -hmm. Committee, um, that were leaked to Fox News, we knew they'd been leaked to Fox News, were leaked by the majority staff of the House Intelligence Committee. But how did, do we get any insight as to how they would, like do, who was Warner texting and how in the world did the staff on the House side get hold of his text? So Warner was apparently texting um, like a Russian lawyer or something. I mean, I'm not quite clear on sort of the... Sort of investigative, like exactly. communicating with a possible witness or something like or that. Or something like that. Um, but apparently the way, like what apparently tipped off the Senate Intelligence Committee to the possibility that the House Intelligence Committee was the one who leaked this was that apparently the version of the text messages or there was some version that had page numbers and some version that did not have page numbers. And the version that was leaked was the one that did not have page numbers, which was the one that was apparently shared confidentially with the House Intelligence Committee. Always a classic operational security measure where you've got... Although in this little... case, it might have been totally unintentional. Oh, oh no, I know. Unintended. But nonetheless, these little things like little printing uh, defects and artifacts... Um, well, okay, so obviously this just further underscores this idea that the HIPSI mechanism has just completely run off the rails. Well, more to the point. I mean, so I want to I actually be even more um, aggressive. Oh, wait, by the way, I, I said Warner's text. It was Wyden's text. I'm sorry, Wyden. Yes. I didn't mean, yes, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, so I want to be pretty, I want to I go further than this. Um, this is either true or it's not, right? Now, right. now, whatever's being said publicly, and by the way, the story also claims that Burr and Warner went to Speaker Ryan yeah. um, to complain about this. Um, if that's true, and you know, I don't, I don't care about public confirmation. I just care about what the principals know, yeah. right? If that's true, um, 
Devin Nunes has violated house rules 16 ways from Sunday, and one of two things has to happen. He either has to be removed from his chairmanship by Speaker Ryan, or this matter has to be referred to the House Ethics Committee. Is it possible he did not know? The story is that the staff did this. That doesn't mean that he knew. I, I think the story is actually ambiguous as to whether it was the staff yeah. or whether it was the, or whether it was members of the or the staff with the. I, the story is ambiguous yeah. about to whether whether the the major Nunes and other members knew this was happening. So I would say there's there's plenty of other reasons why we need well, a new chair there. Yes. But on this one, we'd first have to have reason to think that he actually knew and tolerated. Um, at the very least, I mean, at the very least, I think it demands an ethics investigation because whatever else you think of the politics here, there is just Democrats, Republicans, Martians, right? When one intelligence committee oh, yeah. is subverting its, you know, opposite chambers investigation by publicly leaking texts about members of that committee. Yep. I mean, come on. Like, there's no scenario where that's kosher. There's no doubt about that. So it's very interesting, though, that they're denying that this is actually how it went down. So Well, so they, oh, so on a second, Burr, right? Burr, when asked um, very specific questions, said yeah. no and did not elaborate. So Burr, to me, is by far the most credible. He yeah. and Warner both yeah. very credible. So if they're both saying no. Well, no, Warner is not. Well, maybe he's not. Has he taken a position? Uh, I, so I think he has not commented. Yeah. So uh, you'd want to look at how precise yep. were those exactly. questions. Exactly. Did they leave wiggle room? All, all I have to say is, listen, I mean, the reality is, given everything that's happened, I don't think you or I would be surprised if, no. in fact, it turns out that this is exactly what oh, happened. Oh, no. If, if the question is, like, do you think that could happen? Oh, yeah, totally. And, and, and there's also a scenario where it would make sense, A, why Burr would deny, and B, what, that the denial might not have actually been denying the relevant particulars. Absolutely. No, it puts him in an unfair spot. And again, my... my 20th occasion to say, uh, Richard Burr and Mark Warner, good job. You guys are really doing well. And House Intelligence Committee, not so boo. Much. You do not get the National Security Law Podcast four thumbs of approval. Oh, no. What, the thumbs are down. Thumbs are down. Thumbs are down. Although, you know what that meant in Rome? Death, right? Yes. Okay. All right, we don't mean that. Um, but speaking of the House Intelligence Committee, one last note in our mini little oversight and transparency thread. So Hope Hicks, hours before she resigned, um, right, as White House Communications Director, testified before the House Intelligence Committee last week um, and once again pulled the, I'm not asserting executive privilege, I'm just not answering questions. <laughs> and I just want to sort of, I know we've talked about this before, but, you know, I assume that not all of our listeners have either listened to every episode or remember every episode. Well, I hope so for their sake. Indeed. I just want to sort of, I mean, we don't even remember every episode. Um, <laughs> As we prove often. But I just want to sort of remind everybody what the, what the law is here, right? The law is pretty clear that the witness has every right ab initio to say whatever the heck they want including nothing, and that the burden is then on the committee to compel the witness to answer. And at that moment, the witness has to either answer the question or assert some privilege that allows him or her to not answer the question. So is it fair to say that by when you say, I'm not invoking privilege, I'm just telling you I'm not answering, um, you're basically daring them or you're you're putting the onus on them to exactly push it. right and yeah. so and so when folks look at this these reports of testimony and say look at those executive branch witnesses being evasive again I say yeah but you know that's I mean that's, that's their part job. of the rules of the game right um, what's missing here is not you know candid testimony from executive branch witnesses what's missing here is what we always would have expected in the past which is the chairs of the relevant committees forcing the question and saying, listen, right, you either is assert executive privilege or you answer the question or we hold you in contempt. Those are your three options. So you say would always expect in the past. Certainly as a matter of good government, you'd expect people, if they have a good reason to be investigating, not to take silence as an answer when it's not justified. Um, 
Is it really that different from past practice, at least where there's been one party in charge of both the White House and Congress? Um, Has, hasn't it always been a little weak, to put it mildly, on the congressional investigative A push? little weak, but I don't recall it being this widespread. Like, so, so I can point to individual examples of this kind of dodge, dodgy answers yeah. in individual contexts. But we've seen this from Attorney General Sessions. We've seen this from DNI Coates. We've seen this from Hope Hicks. We've apparently seen it from Steve Bannon. And the problem is that in almost all of these contexts, what's happened, indeed in all of these contexts, the minority members of the committee, right, want to force the witness to answer the question or assert a privilege, which, by the way, if they have a privilege, it's their right to assert it, mm -hmm. right? Or if the president has a privilege, it's the right to assert it on his behalf, sure. right? Um, and the minority and the majority just lets them off the hook. And then, so for all this talk of like, yes, we're, we're exercising our oversight function. Yeah. No, you're not. So to that, I say separation of parties, not powers. Uh-oh, uh, that's, that's bad. That's, that's how it goes. All right, we have almost no time, but we should at least get to some frivolity you you pose the question all time greatest dramas. So so let's let's talk about so so we have to define the category right. Okay, I have a critical question. Does HBO count? It, HBO or any other long form like that because that's gonna or any any other non broadcast network. So so here's my here's mine's my, not in HBO. So my my I'm gonna suggest that the category includes any show that occupies an hour ish okay, of TV like space it. an hour ish. So that could be 43 minutes plus commercials. And with season long, it can be one season or multiple seasons, but a narrative arc. More than a miniseries. Yeah. So I'm gonna, say, I'm gonna say it needs at least two seasons. So it can't be The Looming Tower, can't premiering looming on Hulu this week, <laughs> which includes, and I must, I must say thank you, Lawrence Wright, my friend Lawrence Wright, uh, author of The Looming Tower, included a character name for me. And I'm uh, isn't so isn't, isn't that character a villain? Uh, no, he's not a villain. It's it's an FBI agent who's one of the good guys. And, Plucky uh, comic relief. He he's it's Bill Camp, a really wonderful actor. It's pretty awesome. Anyways, go ahead. Uh, what now that we've established the ground rules, where do you go? So I, I actually think I, it's funny. I was I, I said at the top of the show that I was sure it was The West Wing. And I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hedge a little bit because okay. you know. It's so hard to compare The West Wing and at least the first six seasons of The Game of Thrones. Um, but man, I Interesting. mean, you very know, different animals, very different animals. So The West Wing, I mean, the problem with The West Wing is the first four seasons were, I think, the greatest four seasons to that point in the history of television drama. Let's break it down. Dialogue. So that's to me is a plus. Yeah, it's, it's you can't really. No one's going to top West Wing for dialogue, yep. uh, speed, quality, and acting. Sort of uh, what about uh, plot? So you know, it stumbled a little bit in season one, but you had actually some really interesting plot arcs through seasons two, three, and four. N not its strongest element, but no. the plots were generally interesting. Okay. Um, with Game of Thrones, the plot in well. so up up until more recent seasons <laughs> was not the product of the show; it was the product of right. of the author. Maybe that's fine. Maybe we don't have an adaptation exclusion. Yeah. Hmm. Um, cinematography. So here's the You have one that requires special effects and one that doesn't. I mean, I mean, how much money do they spend on every episode of Game of Thrones, right? right. So it's like right. Well, and and like, how much do you need in terms? Of, you have a set. You have a need for a set, but yep. in terms of costume, all right, I'm going for a tie. I, I I'm sorry. I can't. I can't. I can't divide them. So the first four seasons of The West Wing and the first six seasons, five and a half seasons of Game of Thrones. Okay, so I, I'm going in a different direction. I'm going with Mad Men. Ooh. I, I, I think that... Well, Mad Men clearly counts. I mean, however you're going to define this category, yeah. Mad Men is in it. 
It, and it, some people, you know, it kind of tends to generate strong reactions. You get a barbell reaction. I think as a uh, as a novelistic TV enterprise, which mm-hmm. is to me what TV drama is most interesting when it takes on, it's taken the place. Shows like this have yeah. taken the place of, of the great American novel yep. in a certain respect. Yep. And as a as a way of introducing us of this generation, Generation X or beyond, uh, to to America, a certain part of America, obviously not all Make of America. Make America great c- again. Certain part of America of a certain set of transformative yeah. years. Yeah. It is a hell of an eye opener and, and just endlessly interesting and, and subtly varied in how it's done and some pretty amazing acting. Yep. No, no. So, I mean, listen, uh, Mad Men's a fantastic show. I guess it's, it's, it's all, I mean, I think what I love about these kind of conversations is there aren't necessarily obvious wrong answers, but there are sort of different perspectives, different perspectives on what makes yeah. for compelling television. Yep, exactly. Um, I'm sure we're going to get a lot, for, for, for the, you know, 22 people who yeah. held on this long, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of Hit tweeting. Send us your favorites. Uh, you know, I would say, uh, put in a little plug, sort of an honorable mention for at least the first couple of seasons of the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. I mean, I love BSG. I, it could, on a different dimension. Nothing like Mad Men, what I just said. It's for sheer enjoyment. But man, the plot drag. I mean, the that's show... Why, that's I why mean, I wanted to cut it off after I, a certain point. No, no, but like, even at the end of the first season, it drags on for a while. Really? Like, the Shades of Cobol, and by Cobol's Last Gleaming, like I, that whole I run of episode. I may have too much skin in the game on this, just enjoying it. I mean, it was fantastic, but, you know, it sort of, it, it, it ebbed and flowed. Like, it ebbed for a while, and then, like, you had the Cylon occupation of, of New yeah, Caprica. Yeah, interesting. Right? It was, it's, it's like Deep Space Nine, right? Deep Space Nine, right? I thought Deep Space Nine was really... It finished strong. ...lagging yeah. until you had the introduction of the Dominion yep. and the Dominion-Cardassian War, which was like a two-season-long Yeah, it was a great element. story arc. Yeah. Right. And it resolved, it actually finished in a strong way that most of those types of shows oh, actually, yeah. you know, collapsed by the end. Totally. Speaking of collapsing by the end. Ah, we're actually going to try something new and be done in under an hour. <laughs> Quick, Now, we're, we're just going to apologize again for all the things that happened between Friday afternoon and Monday that we have not covered. Um, fortunately, um, there might be another episode this later this week. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe it will both be back in town by Friday if there's need for an emergency pod. Emergency pod. Did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. All right. On that note, um, follow the National Security Law Podcast. I, I was asked today um, at our admitted students event, um, um, what was the name of the podcast? I said, National Law Podcast. And someone said, clever title. <laughs> Does it describe it or not? <laughs> it's memorable. The National Security Law Podcast right, so is on Twitter at NSL Podcast. NSL. Bobby's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. Um, it's almost baseball season. Oh, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Noah Syndergaard threw 11 pitches over 100 miles an hour. I did not. Yeah, me neither. On that note, stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.